The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Tuesday, November 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After an extremely hot employment market and people job hopping their way to better paying positions, it seems like the great resignation is cooling off. While overall job listings are still higher than pre-pandemic levels, demand is falling in an area where remote work really took off, such as HR, software development, marketing, and math-related roles. Emily Peck, markets correspondent at Axios, joins us for how more people are prioritizing job security over pay. Next, as we approach the midterms and more people than ever are voting by mail, you can now track your ballot in about half of states. The envelopes that carry your mail-in ballots have a number associated with them that corresponds to an individual voter, and that number is used by companies like Ballot Tracks and Ballot Scout to track the ballot. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at the Washington Post, joins us for how you can now track your mail-in ballots every move. Finally, there are about eight different types of difficult people that you can work with. They range anywhere from insecure bosses to office know-it-alls and political operators only looking out for themselves. But the worst type of people to work with are the passive-aggressive types because it's so common and the hardest to pin down. Amy Gallo, contributing editor to the Harvard Business Review and author of Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, joins us for how to handle difficult people. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I love these guys talking about why these guys, guy left my, 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 my employment, went to another job because he got paid more. Joining us now is Emily Peck, markets correspondent at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Hi. Well, let's talk about the great resignation. It seems like we're getting signs that it might finally start cooling off. So the great resignation, just really quick, took off really a lot during the pandemic. A lot of people were quitting their jobs, looking for that better opportunity, better work-life balance, better pay. And in a lot of cases, a lot of people were successful. They were able to transition to other industries, other jobs, all of that. And uh, for a long time, employers were just really having a hard time keeping up with that turnover. Well, right now, the economic conditions are a lot different. And we're seeing that this uh, the great resignation could be cooling down. So Emily, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah. Hi. So basically the red hot labor market is maybe just regular hot now. And especially in some sectors, there's just a lot less hiring going on, particularly in the tech sector. So I was looking for this story at job listings posted on Indeed and in the industries 
that were really, really, really hot and doing a lot of hiring over the past year or so, job listings have really dropped off. So there's been like a 29% decline in postings for software developers, a 26% decline in postings for people in marketing, which was like a very remote friendly kind of role that saw a lot of expansion in the boom and very telling a 27% decline in human resources jobs. As someone told me, you know, if if you're not hiring as many HR people, you're probably not planning on hiring as many people. Big picture. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Uh, A lot of the tech companies definitely were going on these big hiring binges. A lot of the uh, industries that that were really big with remote workers. There's a few headlines I had seen that uh, fears of a a recession coming. Uh, Remote workers could be the first to go. You know what I mean? As as people really start tightening things up. So that's the concern because we're facing these different economic conditions. And a lot of companies are tightening things up now. Exactly. Big tech went on a big binge over the past year or so. Some companies adding like 30% to their headcounts. And now a lot of these companies, particularly Meta, for example, they're freezing hiring and, you know, people are talking about layoffs. So it's just a different picture. And that the big picture is, you know, there's a decline in demand for workers. That means there's less jobs you can job hop to. That was really fueling the great resignation was all the opportunities out there. And now there are fewer opportunities. You had an interesting note in your article talking about how this lower demand for job openings right now means slower wage growth. Um, And that was one of those things that was taking off, obviously, during the pandemic as well. You know, unfortunately, it wasn't keeping up with uh, the inflation that was going on, all that. But you mentioned that this is kind of what the Federal Reserve really wants in the fight against inflation. How does that work out? Yeah. So, I mean, what the Federal Reserve is trying to do to fight inflation is to cool demand for everything. And part of that is to cool demand for workers, because the more demand there is for workers, the higher wages go. That contributes to rising inflation. But declining demand for workers means fewer workers are going to job hop. Like I said, they're not going to demand big pay increases and wages will not start to fall. There's still wage growth is still pretty healthy. Although, like you said, it's not keeping up with inflation, which is a true bummer. We're not going to see big spikes anymore. So we're seeing fewer workers quitting their jobs for better prospects right now. The big thing for everybody is kind of that job security overpay, let's say, right? So they're saying, hey, at least if I have a job, I can weather the storm because that's what it is. That's kind of where we're at. We're this uncertain moment of will the recession be happening? Are we in one currently? That's the big concern. So as long as I have a job, that's the big focus for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that is happening now. An economist at ZipRecruiter, the hiring site, said that in a note, a lot of people are feeling nervous. And when you're nervous about a recession, you might be more inclined to hang on to your job because, you know, first hired, first fired is kind of a rule of thumb a lot of the time. So people might be hesitant to make a big move in the middle of all that. And we saw earlier this year, actually, some companies rescinding job offers or laying off people that were just hired, again, especially in tech. You mentioned uh, one of them earlier, but, you know, some of the occupations we're seeing big declines in, uh, you know, HR, software development, marketing, uh, math related Mm -hmm. roles. We're talking about data science or data Mm -hmm. analysts. But with all of this, right? So overall job listings are down this year so far, but they're still higher than pre-pandemic levels, which is, is once again, this weird economic time that we're in is that there's a lot of employers still looking for jobs, maybe not in the tech sector, but uh, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of job openings still. Yeah, for sure. There are a lot more job openings than there were pre-pandemic and there are a lot more opportunities, I'd say. And there's still a lot of demand for service worker roles and other sectors that are still like 
really competing for talent amid a labor shortage. So, you know, it's not the worst news. Emily Peck, markets correspondent at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. When we've marked their ballot as received, they'll get that alert again when their ballot's been counted, and they'll get an alert if there's an issue with their signature, which is going to be the fastest way to find out about it so you don't have to wait for that letter in the mail. Joining us now is Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jeffrey. Hello, hello. Well, let's talk about some interesting stuff with the midterm elections coming up in just a few days, really. You can now track your ballot online. Now, not every state does this. Maybe about a quarter of all Americans can do this. They have access to this technology. But I mean, it's just an interesting thing. It's it's one of those things that you really think about and you're like, well, why haven't we been doing this much longer, much sooner? But, you know, it could be one of those things that helps assuage some of those concerns about voting, making sure at least that your vote gets there to be counted. So, Jeff, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing with these ballot trackers. Right now, if you vote by mail or by drop-off, there's a little bit of mystery involved in it, right? Like, did my ballot get lost in the mail? Did I send it off in time? Did it get open? Did my vote actually count? And a lot of Americans vote by mail now. I mean, everybody in California, as one example, on the largest state gets a mail-in ballot automatically. So the good news is that it started actually because of the pandemic. States and the counties that run local elections, that run elections locally, I should say, it started investing in technology that basically it's the same stuff that's used by UPS packages and other kinds of things that you might want to track to really kind of build in some assurance for people who are voting by mail and also, frankly, accountability for local officials to make sure that they are opening all these ballots and also for the post office because, you know, yeah, they sometimes do lose ballots. This does happen. It actually happened to my own dad. He sent in his, his ballot in Massachusetts, never got registered. He checked in. Oh, yeah. They had lost it, so they sent them another one. So the way it works is it's pretty simple. The problem is there's not one single way to do it in the U.S. because elections are run locally. So to get started, you're going to have to go to your county, your local election office, and check to see, like, hey, do you have some ballot tracking tech? It's usually something you got to sign up for. It's separate from you know registering to vote, separate from even asking for an absentee or a mail-in ballot. But once you have it, it should be pretty simple. There's a couple of systems that are used by lots of places. One's called Ballot Tracks, another one's called Ballot Scout. And basically, you just go in, you type in your your name, your birth date, and usually your zip code, something like that. Type in a little bit of information, your phone number, your email, and then you start getting messages. They'll tell you when your ballot's on the way. They'll tell you when your ballot's been counted and also, uh, you know, when they've opened it and, and, and received it. Obviously, people are concerned with privacy and all that. Mm. So the way it works is that the envelopes that contain our mail-in ballots, they have a number associated with them, a number associated with each individual voter. And that's what they're tracking, the envelope number, not your actual ballot. Nobody sees the ballot. Nobody sees who you voted for, all that stuff. And that's how it's these codes that provide these uh, uh, are available to these ballot tracking services. Not only does your vote remain completely private, but also this does not give the government some new way to track you. I know that's a concern to some people. The government already knows who does and does not vote. (laughs) In some places, actually, that is a matter of public record. There's databases you can go in and look that up. All this does is kind of give you power over this data. You give you an ability to kind of like pull it up and um, follow your own ballot. Now, what do we uh, know as least about, I don't know, any cybersecurity issues, anything like that, other information getting lost uh, up in the mix? The good news is, as we were just saying, the data that's involved here isn't particularly valuable. It's a matter of public record in lots of places. So it's not a really high 
profile target for potential hackers like voting machines or other kinds of systems. The two companies that you know run the tech in lots of places I spoke to, neither of them have been breached. Um, you know, and they're investing in all this cyber technology. That said, like, look, anytime you get a message via text or email that claims to be from the government about your, the election, about democracy, you should be a little skeptical for it. And if you didn't sign up for this, we don't remember signing up for it, definitely call your local county office before you click on any links or do anything. Right. We all need to be kind of in high awareness level about that. But so far, it's been pretty good for them. And as you lead up into election day anyways, I mean, people are inundated with text messages, you know, whether it's a poll for this or, you know, vote for so-and-so. I'm sure everybody out there listening right now has gotten a number of text messages with election-related materials there. And if you if you live in a county or state that doesn't allow this ballot tracking, there are a couple of other things, I guess, that you can do. It's not really the same, but you made mention in here, USPS informed delivery. Now, how does that work? Yeah, this is a service that uh, the post office offers for free to anybody with an address that receives mail. Just go find, go on Google, find an informed delivery, and they'll send you an email every day with information about all of the mail that's coming into you. So at least you can track it that way. And so overall, I mean, are the states that have participated in this, they're seeing some good success with it all and everybody's kind of happy with the way it's been working out so far? I think so. The biggest problem so far is actually, frankly, just people don't know it exists. And there are some forces in some states where people are really against the idea of mail-in voting or against the idea of drop boxes where there's been spreading some, frankly, misinformation about this technology or the risks that it might bring to your privacy or whatnot. So that's been, I think, a hindrance as well. But I think most of the people who've tried it are like, this is so simple. We track everything else in our lives. Why not give us the power to track our balance? Right. If Amazon can do it, we should at least be able to do it with this. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. 
We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Most of us don't feel that we're actually behaving passive-aggressively. We might think we're being petty, or maybe we're thinking, oh, I'm not being completely straightforward or completely honest with them. But we would never say, oh, I'm a passive-aggressive person. Very few people actually would say that. Joining us now is Amy Gallo, contributing editor at Harvard Business Review and author of Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the people we work with. They're not always the best. Sometimes, you know, people forge great work relationships with others. Sometimes there's the difficult person in the office. And it could be a coworker, it could be a boss, it could be a lot of different things. You wrote an article up, uh, you know, uh, researching for your new book, Getting Along. You identified eight types of difficult people to work with. The passive aggressive type is the, <laughs> the worst person on this list. But uh, Amy, uh, walk us through some of these eight different types, and then we'll talk about the passive-aggressive people specifically, because they could be the more trickiest, one of the more trickier ones to handle. One of the more ubiquitous, too, although all of these, I think, will sound familiar to people, right? So we've got the insecure boss, right? The person, they maybe micromanage, they distrust you, they try to keep you from interacting with other departments or senior people. The pessimist, I think that's pretty self-explanatory, someone who keeps continually shoots down ideas, has nothing positive to say. There's a flavor of the pessimist called the victim, which is you have to distinguish this, of course, from someone who truly is a victim of mistreatment. But this is someone who plays the victim, feels like everyone is out to get them. There's the know-it-all person who just thinks that they have all the answers, can monopolize a meeting, proclaim whatever they want. There's the tormentor, someone who you think will be a mentor, but they end up actually being the opposite, seeming to undermine you. You're familiar with that one. (laughs) There's the biased coworker, someone who commits microaggressions toward you or to others. And then there's the political operator, the person who's really focused on their career, doesn't mind whose heads they have to step on to get ahead. Now, in some of these, right, uh, let's say uh, your insecure boss or something, they're obviously uh, ahead of you and everything. That's an interesting one, too. I mean, how do you deal with positions of authority that might be hampering you at work? When the difficult person is someone who has control over how much money you make, what opportunities you get, right? It can be risky to try to address the behavior. And you can also feel particularly trapped. There's some interesting research, though, that shows if you can shift the balance of power a little bit, and that obviously you're not necessarily going to become their boss, right? That's not what they're referring to. They're talking about gaining a specific area of knowledge or skill or developing a relationship inside the organization that makes you more valuable to that boss, you can then make clear to them that they need you and therefore need to treat you better. That's one skill or one tactic that will that has shown in research to work with someone who's in power. You know, with the insecure boss, unfortunately, what a lot of the research shows, and I don't love giving this advice because it's the last thing anyone wants to do, but is Genuine flattery, right? Actually paying them well timed. <laughs> Sincere compliments can help assuage that ego, right? Calm down their ego a little bit and position you as an ally. It's not, again, not my favorite thing to do. I'm sure, sure it's the last thing pe- people want to do when they're dealing with this insecure boss, but it has been shown yeah. to work. Let's uh, focus a little bit more on the passive aggressive type. As you mentioned, it's probably yeah. something that most people will encounter. 
it's tough to go through because, you know, you might be getting some of the work done, but they could be talking behind your back and, and all this other stuff. I mean, that that's really could be a difficult one. And one of the, yeah. the tips that you have for that is, first off, don't label them as passive aggressive. Don't kind of like publicly identify them because that can make it go all ways of wrong. Most of us don't feel that we're actually behaving passive aggressively. We might think we're being petty or maybe we're thinking, oh, I'm not being completely straightforward or completely honest with them. But we would never say, oh, I'm a passive aggressive person. Very (laughs) few people actually would say that. It's like like telling an angry person, calm down. That's just not going to work. No. No one in the history of arguments has ever calmed down by (laughs) being yelled at to calm down. And in fact, in my personal experience, what I see is telling someone they're passive aggressive actually makes them more passive aggressive (laughs) because you're escalating the fear, right? Most of this behavior is based on fear of failure or rejection or fear of conflict or not having power. And by putting them more on edge, you're intensifying those fears, therefore intensifying the likelihood that they will act out. And instead, you kind of suggest, uh, you know, maybe we can call attention to what's happening. Um, You know, you had an example here. Hey, you said you wanted help on a project. Well, you're not helping out anymore. That help identify what that issue could be, and then maybe you can work around it. That's right. And I think being clear specifically about, about what behavior or actions or lack of action are problematic for you, naming those. Now, you may not get a satisfying response because the passive-aggressive person is an expert dodger. But even by calling out the behavior or action or inaction that you're, you're dissatisfied with, you put them on notice that you're paying attention and they can't get away with that. And it doesn't mean just because they don't acknowledge it or apologize or vow to be different doesn't mean they won't change. And I think that's something to keep in mind. And they they could be angry for a reason, right? So you also suggest, you know, find out what it is that person cares about, you know, kind of getting to the root of, hey, why are you being like this? You know, there's this phrase called hypothesis testing, right? Is that you might say, I noticed you didn't show up at the meeting, even though you really wanted to participate in this project. Could it be that, and then you propose something, right? Could it be that you didn't get the invite? Could it be that you weren't sure how you would contribute? And just sort of put that out there and say, what do you think? Or just ask an open-ended question, you know, what's going on? You might presume you know why they're doing what they're doing, but you probably don't know. So that gives them room to actually say, well, I don't feel included. I feel like you only said you wanted my help, but you don't really want my help, right? Like It gives them a little space to actually vent whatever fear or frustration is contributing to their passive aggression. Amy Gallo, author of Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, and contributing editor at the Harvard Business Review. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call, quickgranger.com or just stop by. 
Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.